Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. One of the most difficult things I've ever had to do how do you tell someone that you're ultimately responsible for their son dying? Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part two, and the final part for now, of the David Bomber story. The man convicted of second-degree murder. A crime, he says, was an act of self-defence. David is incarcerated in Virginia, which just scrapes into the top ten states with the most incarcerated individuals across America with a reported 31,000 inmates housed among its 26 prisons. David tells me the facility he's in is actually relatively calm, considering the sentences that some of the men have. Morning, Jack. How you doing? I'm very well, sir. How's your day been? It's been good. You uh, managed to get your issues sorted out yet? Not really. Um... Yeah, it's just one of the things. It may maybe take some time. Yeah. What's the um, facility that uh, you're in like? Is in uh, is it a rough sort of violent place, or because there's many people that I speak to that have got different environments. Some are more relaxed, others are a bit more volatile. It's a pretty laid back um, institution. It's uh, medium security. You got guys with licenses here, but you would never know it. But it's not volatile at all, as for what you would think with guys with a lot of time. But um, it's uh, well, they totally transition. It used to be um, all inmates here. Now, well, don't get me wrong. It's all it's still all inmates here, but uh, yep. they have what they call receiving, um, and those are guys that are getting processed in the prison, and they they end up getting classified and transferred somewhere else. Um, I'm in general population. Um, one of the things I do here is I have a job in a wood shop, so that keeps me busy. What do you do in the wood shop? I'm a machine operator. We build um, chairs, tabletops. Uh, wardrobe items, um, stuff for state agencies. I assume the pay is not that great. Um, no, nah, it's, it's prison wages. Um, I make um, top pay. I make eighty cent an hour. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, it's not much. Uh, are you in a um, two-man cell situation or an open bay? It's a two-man cell. You get along with your uh, your bunkie. I actually have a pretty decent celly. Um, we're. Uh, Totally different. I'm a city guy and he's a country boy. 
Yeah, so right. We don't really have anything in common, but we get, but we get along great. That helps, I'm sure. It's key in here. You got to have a, um, somebody that you can um, get along with yourself. Not you're just flat out miserable. <laughs> yeah, well, because you're stuck with these people for quite some time. Yeah, and then sometimes getting moved is not always easy. So in our last episode, David talked us through the day's events that would culminate in him being arrested for malicious wounding after stabbing his neighbour Mike. I wanted to drill down a bit more into what actually took place in that apartment on the day that saw Mike getting stabbed. So we pick up the day from the moment they leave the complex pool area and head back to the apartment. My girlfriend wasn't happy with me talking to Tammy. Um, she was a jealous possessive type and um. She finally said, let's just leave. Um, she was upset about the whole thing, and so we decided, okay, it was just best to leave. So you leave the pool and you go back to your apartment and Mike follows you? That's correct. Then when you get back there, you keep drinking? I had stopped drinking because my girlfriend had asked me to stop drinking, but Mike continued to drink. Um, okay. I remember putting the movie uh, 20 in by Kevin Spacey. We actually was thinking about going on a, a road trip to go gambling on um, West Virginia, a state right beside us. But obviously we never made it. So he starts getting more aggressive. Um, did you ask him to leave at any point? Well, he didn't really get aggressive until he put me in a chokehold. Like I say, he just, he just acted weird. And then right before the stabbing, he went into this PTS mode again. He started claiming he had PTS again. And I basically told him, I said, man, it's going to be all right. And I started telling him about my experiences with my custody and how hard it was on me, and that's when he flipped out. Next you know, I'm getting slung to the ground and I'm being put in a chokehold. So there was never an opportunity for me to leave, and like I said, after I, he choked me out um, to the point where I almost lost complete consciousness, when I came to, I was so dis- disoriented, not to mention I couldn't even talk. My daggone throat was on fire, you know. I, I couldn't speak, I could barely, barely catch my breath, and the only thing I think I could do was just to try to get away from him. So, did he let you go, or did you manage to get free from him? According to my ex-girlfriend, she said that she was pushing on him and screaming on him, and I was wiggling around, and somehow I wiggled around. So I want to say, in my best guess, between her pushing on him, distracting him, that he let go enough for me to get out of it. So you get out of that... You say that you're, you know, you, you're disorientated. Were you in the kitchen when this was all happening? Like what's the apartment layout like? The apartment layout is super small. Um, we was in the living room when all this took place, which was right beside my kitchen. Like yep. I said, my, my apartment was tiny. So it was, I'd say, within feet of my kitchen entranceway. Okay. So, so then you say your, your partner then... Um, yells something to you, something of the effect of watch out Dave or, or something like that. Um, That's correct. And then you see Mike coming at you? I see Mike coming towards me, looking pissed off. Where? So which direction was he coming from? He was coming from my left. Okay. And then you just um, you, you reach out and grab the, the knife from the kitchen? Yeah, on the, right there at the entrance to my kitchen was a knife um, set. Yeah, block, yeah. You had everything. You had your, your butcher's knife, a chef's knife, and various steak knives. I grabbed a steak knife, yep. and I just swung, and I swung blindly, and I turned around and swung, and I hit Mike in the chest. 
David says he would attempt to administer first aid by removing his shirt to try and stop the bleeding. In fact, he says that the one eyewitness from outside, the man whose car was hit by David when he left the car park, notes that David was in fact shirtless when he left the complex and his shirt was later found at the apartment. David says that this helps prove his point that he removed his shirt in order to try and administer first aid. Obviously, I mean, is any point of view you said to your girlfriend or your girlfriend suggested that we we thought about calling an ambulance or the police or? Um, she finally suggested, I'd say about two minutes after I stabbed Mike, um, she finally suggested that I leave and she would call um, 911 um, to try to get an ambulance. I mean, obviously, you're not thinking very clearly in this situation. Um, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing looking back and... Um, and going, should I should have done this, I should have done that. Um, but, you know, you stab a guy in self-defence and then it, it looks it looks to authorities that you're running. Right. Why did your girlfriend suggest you leave? Because of my custody battle. The way we looked at it, and um, I, I remember screaming, I'm never going to see my kids again. So that's what made her tell me to leave. In my mind, if I got charged with any kind of crime, there, there went me getting custody of my kids. And that's what ultimately happened. Um, so yeah, so I, I just panicked. Um, like you said, I wasn't thinking clearly and it overwhelmed me. Yeah. This wouldn't be the only issue. Obviously, David leaving the scene is not a good look. Even he admits that. However, it's what his girlfriend does next that will also not help David's situation of claims of self-defence. Your partner said, you know, suggested you leave because of the custody situation. But, I mean, ultimately, they were always going to find out that it was you, I'm assuming, that stabbed them unless she was planning... I mean, what was she going to tell them when they arrived? She just said that she was going to call the ambulance. And um, when she did, I come to find out that she told them that he tried to commit suicide. All right, so she was trying to protect you and said that he tried to commit suicide. Right. So this case has a couple of differences to the cases that we usually hear about here on OMR. A lot of the men and women we've spoken to have been taken into custody for questioning and will begin talking with police without a lawyer present. Something we know is not generally a good idea, no matter how innocent or guilty you might be. However, in this situation, David decides to indeed exercise his Miranda rights, his right to silence. They picked you up and took you to the police station. Are they obviously, I'm assuming they questioned you about the situation that had happened? When they, when they arrested me, uh, one of the detectives tried to question me. And I told them that I was exercising my Miranda rights. And, and once a person tells the police that they're using their Miranda rights, the police are not allowed to talk to you unless you have a lawyer present. And then once I secured counsel, they never did come back and talk to me. So I was never questioned, ever by the police. Now, what is the same as all of our other stories is that David ends up with a court-appointed public defender, who he says at one point went behind his back. I ended up having a court-appointed attorney, yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I did. I, I couldn't... Um, at the time, I had a family law attorney that was handling my custody, and he wanted too much money for me to handle my case, and I, I just... I didn't have the means to hire him for this. So I got stuck with a court-appointed attorney, and I actually was going to fire the guy. And then he ended up coming to see me one day, and he <laughs> had to tell me that he had been talking to another lawyer about my case. He, in other words, he was in over his head. 
and we both knew this, but um, in any event, the lawyer that he ended up talking to, I ended up knowing from when I got in trouble when I was younger. And, um, you know, he was a, a decent lawyer, and I respected him and all that good stuff. And So he said that he was willing to take my case, and so I called him, and in the long run, he ended up taking my case for free, and he kept my original lawyer on Jeff, and so, um, you know, I essentially had two lawyers on my case. Yeah, right. That should be a good sign, really. I mean, obviously, we know what happened, so it didn't turn out that way. But um, at the time, you must have felt confident having not just one but two lawyers working on your defence. Uh, absolutely. Um, Wayne, the, the, my main counsel, he had uh, he'd represented um, clients that had murder charges for, and uh, I believe he walked one of them at one time. You know, he was a skilled attorney. He'd been practicing law for decades. So yeah, I was. I, I felt totally confident in him. But taking a jury trial was a gamble. It's a risk anytime you take a jury trial. Did they did they offer you a plea? Well, this is the reason why I was going to fire Jeff. Jeff, before um, my preliminary hearing, actually went to the um, Commonwealth attorney, who's a prosecutor, and they made an informal he made an informal plea agreement behind my back. I, and the prosecutor came back with this ridiculous um, uh, a plea of 30 years suspended after doing 20. In other words, I would do 20 years and then have 10 years hanging over my head. And this was just all the aggravated Mrs. Wooner. But you got to keep in mind, an aggravated Mrs. Wooner's statute starts at 20 years. And so, you know, of course, there was no way that I was going to accept any sort of plea like that. I, I rejected it, and, and like I said, that's kind of what made me want to fire Jeff. And then... The next day is when he showed up telling me about talking with Wayne. So it was a lot going on all at once. David would reject any form of a plea deal. Essentially, he says, this was self-defence and he decided to take his chances at trial. So we're going to take a short break and when we come back, David goes to trial. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So at any stage, did your attorney say, you know, let's sit down with the officers and explain the whole situation around the self-defence or had that, t- had that sort of passed and it was a case of, well, we're just going to go to jury trial and we'll explain it at trial? The way that Wayne talked, now he mentioned that he had talked with the prosecutor and said, hey, this is a self-defence case. Um, we understand that he's not never going to recover. If Maybe we could bring him settle us down or something, but nothing ever came to fruition of this. They was basically, they wanted to play hardball all the time. <laughs> the, uh, I'd say in the least, is, is that the prosecutor was just on a vendetta. you got to keep in mind, the, the, to them, this this was not my first time, so they would probably yeah. had the mindset, okay, well, he should have known better. And you had a history, yeah. I, I can't honestly, I, I can only speculate what went through their mind. All I can tell you is, they never came with me anything reasonable. What what's happening with your girlfriend at this stage? Is she did she get arrested? Is she in custody or is she helping in any way? They, at first they charged her. Um, I don't remember what the exact charge was. Something about false information to a law law enforcement officer. Something along them lines. And then they ended up, they dismissed it. And the way Wayne explained it to me was they was going to try to flip her. And, of course, she never did flip to that side. But, yeah, they, um, they was definitely trying to flip her. As, as you said already, she, tried to, she told them that this guy tried to kill himself. So at what point do they realize that he hasn't tried to kill himself and that you've stabbed him? They knew immediately. Um, of course, I didn't know none of this for weeks. Um, that wasn't until Jeff enlightened me, but I actually, one time, I used to have the transcripts on this, but immediately they was like, we know that he didn't try to commit suicide. And then she changed her story to, we got into a tussle over the knife, and um, the knife slipped and fell into his chest. And, and at that point, they told her, said, look, we know you're lying. Um, now's not the time to protect Dave. And, and that's when she went into, well, I swear I'm not trying to protect Dave. And, and then finally she broke down and told him what had happened. Of course, by that right. time, it was a little bit too late. So, okay, so she's, she's explained what happened. So she's told them that it was self-defense? She eventually did. Um, on the third interview, she finally told him what happened. Um, I believe starting from her second statement, she started talking about the, um, Mike's claims of PTSD. And from that point, that same claim was, was prevalent. But... The third, fourth, and ultimately fifth statement that she made was generally the same. That Mike claimed he had PTSD, that he put me in a chokehold, he threatened to kill me, and um, he choked me out to the point of unconsciousness. And the interesting thing about the fifth interview was me and her had separated. We probably, we probably lasted ten months, maybe nine to ten months after the stabbing. And then she just finally went her own way. Right before my second trial, 
the police re-interviewed her again, and her statement was almost word for word from her third and fourth statement. So then if you've got the three of you, Mike, you and your girlfriend in this property at the same time, you're the only ones that were there during this incident. You've got her saying it was self-defence, you saying it's self-defence. What was their case against you to say, you know, this wasn't self-defence, you stabbed this man? What was their evidence? Well, other than her her initial lying, um, like I said, t- six months later, they, they come up with these assaults. And I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not a, a lawyer, but well, I know they introduced it to try to bring up my state of mind. But by this time, they knew I was going to have a jury trial. So we have a thing over here in the States called reasonable doubt. And so I would say that the reason why they did that was to try to erase any kind of reasonable doubt. David is off to trial, charged with multiple offences, including, of course, aggravated malicious wounding and second-degree murder. Aggravated malicious wounding in the state of Virginia is punished as a Class II felony and has a minimum prison sentence of 20 years, as well as, of course, second-degree murder, which would carry a sentence of up to 40 years. So who exactly would be testifying for the prosecution? Well, they brought in a few people, including the owner of the apartment complex, who David says had an axe to grind with him. We had uh, what we call a rebuttal witness, um, which was kind of interesting. There was a lady named Cheryl Argerbright that testified, and she was the lady that handled the apartment complex, um, the, the leasing agent, the property manager, however you want to label it. And what made Cheryl so interesting is um, when I first moved into Cinema Ridge, where we lived at, she introduced me to her son, who was a lawyer, um, and I ended up hiring him. And to make a long story short, um, come to find out he was nothing but an ambulance chasing lawyer. That, and he tried to con me. And he, he handled my initial custody. And I ended up firing him in court one day. I mean, literally in front of the judge. Um, because he tried to continue a case. He was trying to bill me for a case, this, that, and another. And, and it was just, there was a whole lot of drama behind it. And so there was a lot of bad blood behind it. And matter of fact, Paul um, ended up sending me a, a threat one day on Facebook and told me I was going to pay dearly for firing him. Um, it was the craziest thing, you know. And then if he wasn't harassed me, his mom was. Um, so I wasn't surprised to see her get, see her get up there. But she basically got up there and, and contradicted what my girlfriend had said. And um, when she, when you say she contradicted what your girlfriend said, what what was she saying about you? Well, when I first got arrested. Um, one of the things I had to do is I had to send a notarized note to my, uh, for my girlfriend to be able to get into the property. And the reason why I'm pointing it out is when we went to trial, Cheryl said on that same day that my girlfriend confided in her and said that the stabbing wasn't in self-defense. And she said that it was basically over my manhood. What do you think she meant by that? She insinuated that, that uh, Mike had insulted me in some kind of way and that um, I got angry and stabbed him. But like I said, that's not what happened um, at all. The funny thing about it was my lawyer had to ask Cheryl three times. He asked her this. The only thing he asked her was, you don't like David Bomber, do you? And she would launch into something else. She wouldn't answer the question. She would evade the question. She said, well, well, Dave did this. And my lawyer said, so you don't like David Bomber. Well, David did this. 
right, and go into something else. Finally, on the third time, I mean, you could just hear the disdain dripping off her tongue. She was like, no, I don't like him at all. You know, she finally answered the question. So you could tell that she had an axe to grind. Yeah. But like I said, the jury, I, I couldn't introduce the bad blood between me and her son, you know, because uh, as far as they was, the court was concerned, that's not relevant. It's not even material. But it is if, if you're a rebuttal witness. If so. she's a witness up there against you for the prosecution saying things like, you know, your girlfriend confided in her that this wasn't an accident, surely you should be able to show reason why she could be lying. I, I agree. But the only thing I can think is that maybe my lawyer just thought it was a better trial strategy not waste a whole lot of time and just ask that point-blank question. You don't like them. And yeah. like I said, he did get the answer that he was looking for, so... Other than that, the prosecution bring forward a jailhouse informant. Now, this isn't unusual. However, it doesn't take a genius to work out the motives behind why someone who is incarcerated would come forward to testify for the state against someone in a completely different trial. I mean, I might be being cynical here, but I doubt they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts because they want to see justice done. Now, this is the first time we've come across a jailhouse informant, so I want to spend a bit of time talking about this because it's kind of a big deal. The vast majority of these so-called informants obtain leniency on their own cases or other benefits in exchange for these testimonies. In fact, the Innocence Project state that jailhouse informant testimony is one of the leading contributing factors of wrongful convictions nationally across the United States. There is a secrecy that surrounds these testimonies, and in many wrongful convictions, defendants were not given key information related to the credibility of the informants who testified, including the benefits they received, previous cases they informed on, or their criminal background. In 1983, a lady by the name of Ellen Reasonover alerted police to suspicious activity that she'd witnessed after hearing about a murder. Now, she was subsequently arrested for that murder. And while awaiting trial, two jailhouse informants would come forward and say that she'd confessed to them about the murder. The deals they received were never disclosed to the defence and Ellen was subsequently found guilty. She was only exonerated 16 years later in 1999. Although Reasonover maintained her innocence from day one, a jury found her guilty in the murder of the 19-year-old gas station attendant, James Buckley. So why did they suspect you? I don't think they really did suspect me. It was a high-profile case, and they just needed someone for their case. With no physical evidence or eyewitnesses placing Ellen Reasonover at the scene, and after discovering two secretly recorded audio tapes that could have helped prove her innocence, a judge overturned her conviction and sentence. In 1984, James Kloppelberg was arrested for a fire that killed six people in Chicago. Not long after, a man was arrested for a burglary and would say that James admitted the crime to him. Years later, after new evidence was discovered that showed James's innocence, the informant also recanted his testimony and said he did it in exchange for a reduced sentence. James would subsequently be freed 25 years later. Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz, 17 years. Paul Wilson, the list goes on. And you can read more about these cases at the link in the show notes of this episode. 
There are currently, however, around seven states in the US that do regulate the use of jailhouse evidence and reforms are being made in others. None of these being Virginia, the state in which we're talking about. Now, of course, I'm not saying this is what happened in this particular case. However, you do have to look at all the reasons why someone might testify, especially someone who has nothing to do with the case at all. There's a guy named Danny Bailey that, um, for whatever reason, they, they continued his case. Um, they continued it. Um, he was supposed to have been sentenced on the same day as my trial by a different judge in the same courthouse. And for whatever reason, he learned about my case somehow. And he come up to me one day, and cell was right beside me, and he walked up to me one day and he said, Why'd you do it? And I said, what the hell are you talking about, man? And he's like, um, why'd you kill the guy? I said, look, uh, I'm not even going to talk to you about it, right? And after that, I tried to avoid the guy. Next thing I know, they moved the guy out of the pod, and I don't think nothing else about it. And I was in the I was in the county jail, and then about a week before my trial, which my lawyer had me had it set up so I stayed in the county because it was right beside the courthouse. Next thing you know, I'm being transferred crossed down to the regional jail. And then I found out that this guy had jumped on my case. I know I never shared anything with this guy. I can only speculate that somehow or another, he was given some information, whether it was by a lawyer or whatnot. I know he had another one named Chris Qualichek. I had heard at one time that he was affiliated with Paul Dole. Again, I can only speculate. Who's this Paul guy? Paul Doe was, was Cheryl Augerbright's son, the guy hired. Oh, yeah, right, okay. All right, yeah, I'm with you. I can only speculate. Now, I know when I went to the regional jail, I had two, after after I was found guilty, you got to keep in mind that I made the paper. Not that I'm bragging about it, because believe me, I didn't like making the paper at all. But I had two different guys, uh, actually three, three different guys pull up on me in the jail. One of them I knew from the streets, I knew him pretty well been knowing him for, I don't know, 15 years or so. But then I had two other guys, and they all said the same thing. They said, did you know that Danny Bailey used to be a paid informant? And I actually filed a lawsuit against the Roanoke City Jail one time to try to find, or Roanoke City Police Department, excuse me, to try to find out about it. I never got anywhere with it because they basically had it squashed. You know, in other words, they was not going to release that. But, uh, you know, because I, if, if I would have ever found out he was a police informant, then that would have overturned my case. The prosecutor did ask if he, if, he hoped to benefit from it, and uh, he was like, absolutely. So, uh, in my mind, I said there was some politics at play. I just don't know how, and I can't prove it. So, why do you think that they were so out to prove that you murdered this guy? Well, for one, Mike was a former police officer. Um, right. That He was a former Marine, and he was also a former MP while he was in the Marines. So, knowing that he was a former police officer, I I would say there was enough to kind of stoke the fire right there. So what about the defence? Well, David says there really wasn't many people to get up in his defence. But again, another difference here in this particular case is that usually the accused won't testify in their own trial. However, David did in fact get up on the stand. Did, Did your girlfriend get up on the stand and testify? 
she did. She testified in, uh, on my behalf. Okay. Did you have anyone else testify on your behalf? Uh, no. Did you get up and testify yourself? I did. What was that experience like? Oh, it was it was kind of grueling. Um, you know, one of the things that um, my lawyer asked me to do was turn around and face the family and, and uh, tell them I was sorry. That's one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. How do you tell someone that you're ultimately responsible for their son dying? If it's yeah, it was that was um, pretty hard to do. Um, and of course, you know, facing the jury and they're scrutinizing you. That's it was kind of scary, you know. Yeah, David would actually have not one but two trials. After the defence would find out that one member of the jury may in fact have a conflict of interest. My first trial started on April 4th um, of 2011. And as soon as we impaneled the jury, we found out that one of the jurors had business ties with Mike's father. So we, we asked for a mistrial and we got it. A couple months later, the trial started on July 11th and concluded on the 14th with the sentencing phase and everything. So David has his second trial. It goes for four days until both sides rest. Now, of course, it is time for the jury to go away and deliberate. As you'll know from listening to this show from other cases that we've discussed, I'm very much of the opinion that jury trials are fraught with issues. Now, if you've received the letter in the mail, you'll know what I'm talking about here. You've been selected for jury duty. In fact, it's happened to me twice. And the first thing most people think is, how on earth am I going to get out of this? Of course, unless you're into true crime, then you might be thinking all your Christmases have come at once. But essentially, you have 12 people, and I would guess definitely over 50% see this whole thing as an inconvenience. I'd say more than that, again, have very little idea of the law itself. And yet here we sit, ready to potentially take someone's life away from them. Now, of course, the jury system is as old as time, and that's the way it is. But it's certainly not helped when judges do things like this. How long did the jury take to deliberate on the on the case? This is one of the things I never agreed with. Um, around 6, maybe 6.30 p.m., I believe, they ended closing arguments for the night. Rather than either putting off the closing arguments sort of first thing in the morning or letting the jury go home, the judge basically told the jury that he was not going to let them go unless they stayed up to the wee hours at night. But he basically told the jury they was not going to go home until they made a decision at night. Around 10 o'clock at night, they come up with their decision. There's no way in the world you can't tell me that this jury was not mentally fatigued after sitting there from 8.30 in the morning till almost 10 o'clock at night. So, Hell, if I was on the jury, I'd be ready to throw in a towel and either full acquit or, or find them guilty. One of the two. Um, you know, if I was faced with that kind of uh, directive. So they, so they, they do closing arguments at 6.30 p.m. at night, is that what you're saying? Um, That's correct. And then the judge turns around to the jury and says, right, you need to go make a decision and you need to make a decision on this. You're not going home until you do. Right. yes. Well, that doesn't seem right. No. So the jury goes out to deliberate and will return around 10pm that evening with their verdict. They find David guilty on every single one of his charges. Um, 
it was just a range of emotions. I was, uh, I tried preparing myself for it, you know, either way, and um, but yeah, it was definitely devastating. How long after that before sentencing was handed down? The next morning, the jury recommended their sentence. Um, they recommended 25 years for the aggravated malicious wounding, 15 years for the second-degree murder, and three months each, um, four months each, excuse me, for each of the um, assault and batteries. And then I was formally sentenced to all that on November 8th, 2011, and the judge handed down an extra 30 days each for the hit-and-run and reckless driving for a combined total of 41 years and 60 days. Must be a hard thing to hear. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, here in Virginia, we don't even have parole no more. So it's the, at the best, you do 85% of your time. So where, where, are you, where are you at with your appeals? What have you put through already? My lawyer, uh, my main lawyer, Wayne, he filed an appeal. The Court of Appeals heard it. And according to the Court of Appeals, they said they couldn't ascertain the legislative intent. Supreme Court of Virginia, they heard my appeal too, but they denied, both courts have denied it. From that point on, I've filed a, my own direct appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Of course, they didn't hear my case. But then again, they only hear about 1% of all cases. So I wasn't surprised especially being a prisoner, filing his own plea. From that point on, I filed what was called a habeas corpus, which is um, where you basically uh, attack the uh, legality of your detention. I went through the circuit court where I was tried, and then I went to the Supreme Court of Virginia, and then I went through all the federal courts back up to the United States Supreme Court again. It took all that whole process, took me three and a half, maybe four years. I exhausted all that. So I wrote this, this lengthy petition that's online, and I've been presented to lawmakers. The problem I'm having with these lawmakers is they don't want to listen to a, a prisoner. So what I'm trying to do is, and I wrote a bill to go along with this. So what I'm trying to do is change the statute right, to correct the miscarriage of, my, uh, of justice in my case, right, and safeguard similarly situated defendants in the future. Right, because we do have double jeopardy in this country. Yeah. So I'm trying to safeguard it so that other people aren't fall under double jeopardy, you know, and, and fall into a situation such as mine. Don't get me wrong. I believe in accountability. I don't agree with what the jury came up with. I, I totally disagree. With it. But I, I respect it. Right? At this point in time, uh, I've done did the time for the secondary murder. I'll just live with it. You know what I mean? I'm always going to maintain that I, I, I act in self-defense, but um, I believe in fairness, too. I don't feel like I should have to serve two distinctly different sentences for a single act. You have one minute. Remaining. This is the story of David Bomber, as told by him. We will, of course, keep up to date with David, and you can find out more details of David's story and how you can help in the show notes of this episode. David's case is one that had witnesses place him at the scene of the crime. There's literally no disputing the fact that he was there. But what if... You're accused of a murder that happened over 400 miles away from where you were. 
you have dozens of witnesses that place you over 400 miles away from where a murder occurred. Yet the prosecution still managed to convince a jury of 12 of your peers that you're guilty. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Hey, Jack. Uh, hello, hello. <laughs> hello, hello. How you doing, brother? I'm good. How are you, my friend? How are you? Fantastic. The stars are aligned and we're, and we're speaking. And I want to tell you I'm very honored to be speaking to you. Uh, very impressed by how your program's blowing up over there in Australia and the land down under. You think you've heard it all. And then you hear the story of Temujin Kenzu. They literally, their first theory, and I want listeners to know that this is true and this is in the transcripts. Their first theory, get ready everybody, was that I teleported. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. <laughs>